What is pursuit and game and urge to conquer? What is there in the sight of running men that draws one on and whets the appetite with lust that knows no ease? Private Elton E. Mackin, Company Runner, 67th Company D, 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, 4th Brigade Marine, 2nd Division AEF. From his memoir, Suddenly We Didn't Want to Die, The Battle of Blancmont Ridge, October 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 69, Champagne, Blancmont, part three. As always, folks, let's start the show with some shout outs. First on the list are some recent PayPal donations from Andrew and Gary of the Leicestershire Regiment. Thank you so much for your generous gifts. Next up, are our new patrons on Patreon. Listener Mark, to whom I say, yes, I'll take you up on that beer out in the Argonne once this pandemic goes the way of the 1918 flu. And Quaylen, many thanks to you both and your generous support of the show as well. Patrons on Patreon have early access to all new episodes, as well as operations maps, transcripts, and bibliographies for those episodes. They will also have other perks, such as not-yet-released episodes and being able to submit a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. Patrons also have the possibility of naming a battle they'd like to hear covered on the show. If you are interested in signing up, just point your internets to patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast and you can enlist there. Sign-ups are for three years or duration. Your choice. Just kidding. That's a bad World War I inside joke. I'll see myself out. Thanks. You will only be charged when an episode is released, and your patronage is greatly appreciated. All of these gifts and ongoing support go towards keeping the servers running, maintaining the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, and towards getting the necessary research materials for these episodes. All of this is a real blessing, folks. Thank you. Okay, last admin note before we head back up the line. Faceplant alert. Private First Class Frank J. Bart wasn't the only Manchu of the 9th Infantry Regiment to receive the Medal of Honor while in France during World War I. Sergeant Ludovicus M.M. Van Eersel, Company M, 3rd Battalion, 9th U.S. Infantry Regiment, 3rd Brigade, 2nd Division, AEF, was also awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions at the bridgehead at Mouzon, France, on the evening of Saturday, November 9th, 1918. We'll meet Sergeant Van Eersel when we get to the AEF's final push in the Meuse-Argonne. Sorry about that, folks. So let's get back in the trenches. East of the French city of Reims, in the Champagne region, the battle for Blancmont Ridge was just beginning. The 3rd of October had seen the American 2nd Division, 
under French command, assault the long-sought ridgeline with both of its brigades. In a day of heavy and bloody fighting, the veteran American fighters had advanced and seized part of the ridge. In the early hours of the next morning, October 4, 1918, the Germans launched a desperate counterattack to retake Blancmont and the surrounding features. For anyone who has read deep into the American experience in the Great War, they will likely eventually have come across the American Battle Monuments Commission's publications from the Summary of Operations in the World War books for each of the divisions that took part in combat operations to the essential American armies and battlefields in Europe. These publications are where the operational maps that get posted on Patreon originally came from. These books are a major source of information for the BFWWP and other Great War and AEF researchers. But, of course, as a government publication, you know that reading one of these will be a pretty dry affair. These are excellent examples of dispassionate writing. So, for the ABMC to step out of consummately cold and professional writing, to describe the events of the 4th of October, 1918, as one great maelstrom of violence in its American armies and battlefields in Europe guidebook, there is something that set this day apart and called for a more robust description of what the day was really like. It started with that German counterattack at 0415 that morning. From the German Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Otto's work, the battle at Blancmont, we get a view from the enemy side on how the early morning assault went. Quote, In a magnificent forward rush, though suffering considerable casualties, the assault battalions soon recaptured the hill line. However, as reinforcements failed to arrive and strengthen both flanks, it was impossible to maintain this hill against an American counterattack that was launched from a depression south of Ludwigshoeken. A new attempt to regain the hill was planned by the commanding officer to be launched at 9.40 a.m. This assault coincided and collided with an American attack against the saint etienne bloodnitz Hill line, end quote. The early attack had resulted in Ludwigshoeken Hill north of Blancmont having been recaptured by the Germans, and the American counterattack was the delayed attack of the 5th Marine Regiment running straight into the Germans. Using the D320-D23 Somme-Pie-Saint-Étienne Road as their guide, the battalions of the 5th Marine Regiment passed through the Marines of the 6th Regiment in the morning gloom. That attack's beginning time was 0600, with the objective being the road fork at Say Farm, a kilometer south of Saint-Étienne, 3rd Battalion, under the squat fireplug of a man, Major Henry L. Larson, United States Marine Corps, took the lead, with 2nd Battalion, under the command of Major Robert E. Messersmith, 500 meters behind in support, and 1st Battalion, under the command of Major George W. Hamilton, 500 meters behind them in reserve. Worryingly, 2nd Division gave no artillery support as the Marines set off, Already, even through the constant shelling, the sounds of heavy combat around Ludwigshoeken ahead could be discerned. 
on the 2nd Division's left, Poilus of the 22nd Division d'Infanterie, Infantry Division, or DI for short, attacked through the morning fog to take the Essen Hook position. German artillery was already raining down as the Marines assembled. As soon as the shapes of the American leathernecks came into view, artillery came in hot and heavy, and machine gun fire began cutting brutally into the columns and groups of men as they advanced. Marines fell, crumpled, or cried out and collapsed as bullets tore into their bodies. German airplanes added to the terror throughout the morning, coming in low to strafe the ranks of Marines as they continued to crawl forward. The roar of the shells and the machine guns must have been maddening when it was coupled with the screams of the wounded and dying. The Germans had every inch of Blancmont pre-sighted for all types of fire, and they were defending their line to the hilt. The northern slope of the ridge was being soaked in iron. 3rd Battalion's men managed to move down the northern slope and into the low ground at the base of the Ludwigsrücken Hill to the northwest. The draw of the hill gave some protection from the devastating fire. Having pushed that far forward, the Marines were able to link with the Doughboys of the 23rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, who had been in their salient all night long on the right. Major Larison organized his remaining men into an attack on Ludwigsrücken, they picked themselves up at 10 o'clock that morning and began the advance on the hill. As soon as they did, the German artillery let loose a terrible fire on them, and that was just the beginning. Two depleted German battalions on Petersburg Hill to the west, in what was the French sector, opened up on the exposed Americans as they pressed their attack. Larson's marines crawled and shot their way up the hill, even as German planes above cut down man after man in strafing runs. The Americans cleared Ludwigshoeken again, and under the relentless fire dug in under the crest of the hill. The artillery fire was as heavy as ever, and gas shells made conditions even worse as men now had to don their protective masks. Larson sent messages back stating he would soon be unable to hold his front and that he needed help right away. 2nd Battalion Marines, under Major Robert E. Messersmith, deployed to the left of the 3rd Battalion's front and also received that same enfilading fire from their exposed left flank. From Lieutenant Colonel Pete Owens and Lieutenant Colonel John Swift's recent monograph titled A Hideous Price, we get testimony of those who were there. Marine Private Clarence Richmond was a witness to that deluge. Quote, we soon detected that we were being fired on from almost the rear on our left, indication that no advance had been made by whoever was on our left flank. There became about as much danger of being shot from the rear as being shot from the front. We were pursuing a course almost parallel with a main highway, and as a consequence were under direct observation. As we cleared the crest of a rise, the machine gun and artillery fire became so fierce we were unable to continue our advance. The October sun was warm, and as we would rest a few minutes now and then, I would lie flat on the ground and almost fall asleep due to being sleepy and from the effect of the sun's rays, even though machine gun bullets clipped the ground here and there all around me. Finding we could not safely advance beyond the crest of the hill, we fell back a ways and dug in. Artillery fire was point blank. End quote. 
The Marines of 2nd Battalion pushed up to get on line with 3rd Battalion. But everywhere and at nearly every turn, men were dropping, crying out, bursting from direct hits of bullets or shells. The fire coming from the open left flank was steadily destroying the Marine battalions. It was murderous. Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Otto's book tells the story from the German side here as well. Quote, Even when deploying, the enemy suffered bloody losses. The separate and isolated groups coming in carelessly at first were at once subjected to a withering concentrated fire of light and heavy machine guns. Everywhere, good results were observed. Gaping holes were torn in the lines of riflemen, entire columns being mowed down. Much to our advantage were the light yellow-brown uniforms of the Americans, altogether impractical for this terrain. They were visible at great distances and offered excellent targets. After the enemy had deployed along the entire front, he prepared to descend the north slope of the hill and to debouch from the elevated strip of woods. In this attempt, he was everywhere unsuccessful because our machine guns placed such a well-directed fire on the slope that the enemy, after long-continued efforts, finally abandoned his plans. Around noon, seeing the machine gun fire coming from the area of the Petersburg Hill on the left flank, Major George W. Hamilton, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, echeloned his men from behind the 2nd Battalion and aimed them west across the Somme saint road and towards the enemy-held hill. As they then pivoted north, they ran straight into an oncoming German counterattack coming from the west. Germans of the 1st Battalion, 149th Infantry, and 3rd Battalion, 368th Infantry, were advancing towards the Marines in the area of Ludwigshochen. The Germans were thrown back violently. On Ludwigsrücken itself, Major Larsen gave the order for his two leftmost companies to pull back some and tie in with the 2nd Battalion on their left. The withering hailstorm falling on the 3rd and 2nd Battalions was a nightmare from which the Marines could not escape. The wooded area they found themselves in offered scant protection and plenty of obstacles. Now the Marines of 2nd Battalion saw others from their sister unit coming back towards them. Marine Private John Osland of 2nd Battalion's 55th Company H was in the middle of it all. Quote, We couldn't see through these trees to the right or left, except for the men nearest you, but we could see ahead, and apparently the enemy ahead could see us. All hell broke loose. Dig in, shouted Captain DeWitt Pack. As we dug, the shells from the German artillery on the ridge ahead rained on us. The machine guns on our left possibly 300 yards away, opened up shooting through the evergreens by calculation. Lieutenant Joseph F. Marr was killed, and Captain Peck was hit in the neck. Seeing we faced annihilation, Captain Peck shouted, Fall back! By whose orders was the reply? By order of Captain Peck was the reply. And so the retirement began. As men saw a chance to make it, they left. But I have to give it to Captain Peck. He was wounded and was going to get out of here anyway and could have left us to our fate or let some other officer give the orders to fall back. He had everything to lose, personally, and nothing to gain, but he gave the order anyway, and the Marine Corps doesn't look lightly on falling back, no matter why. End quote. 
Lieutenant Colonel Otto's book confirms the breakdown on the American side. One could plainly observe that the unrest in his ranks grew every minute, Otto wrote. Lone individuals, and frequently entire detachments, ran aimlessly about. A great number of dead remained on the field. Already, a few began to escape up the hill. Finally, the hostile detachments, in wild flight, hastened up the slope. Our own artillery now launched a well-directed fire on the strips of woods and completed the enemy's confusion. Even during their flight, they were sharply pursued by our machine gun fire. Author David Laskin, in his book, The Long Way Home, An American Journey from Ellis Island to the Great War, has a good passage on perhaps why the Marines of 2nd Battalion briefly broke that day. Quote, Marines had been through as bad or worse at Bellow Wood and Soissons and muscled through, so it's hard to explain why they cracked now. Maybe it was because so many of the old leathernecks had been killed or wounded. Maybe it was because so many of the men in the field now were wartime recruits with limited training and experience. Maybe it was something more ineffable. A subtle ebbing of morale, a pervasive wariness of war, a chill they caught from the nakedness of the sloping topography. For whatever reason, by 2 p.m., some of the Marines broke ranks and started running to the rear. End quote. One five Marines, however, came up behind 2nd Battalion and worked desperately to stop the situation and get their brother Leathernecks back in the line. Major Hamilton, 1st Battalion's commander, later wrote one of the few reports of the event. In some instances, officers were leading in what appeared to be a grand rout, Hamilton wrote. Among those whom I noticed particularly was Captain Peck, Captain Jackson, and Major Messersmith. There were also several lieutenants whom I did not recognize. Major Messersmith explained that he had lost all his officers, but didn't show any initiative or leadership. Captain Jackson was hopeless. When it became evident that the retirement had become a rout, Lieutenant Nelms ran out and endeavored to turn the men back. His task was a hard one and attempted a great personal exposure to machine gun fire and a violent artillery bombardment. We then were forced to draw our pistols, and it was only by this method that we were able to stop the retreat. The panic was ended, and Hamilton's Marines pushed through the artillery drum fire to get to the line at Ludwigshochen. Elton Mackin related in his memoir, Suddenly, we didn't want to die, the unimaginable terror of the enemy's ceaseless shelling. Quote, The barrage caught us flat, crouched down along the slope below the crest, and, for a bloody while, our losses passed all reason as we waited there for word of a zero hour that never came. The men were stunned, lashed down to earth by flailing whips of shrapnel, gas, and heavy stuff that came as drum fire, killing them. There was no place in all our little world for us to go. The fellows bunched against the fancied shelter of the larger trees and little close-packed knots, like storm-swept sheep, and died that way, in groups." End quote. First Battalion ground on, passed the crest of Ludwigshochen, and broke out into the more open ground towards Saint-Étienne. The Marines advanced right into a position where the Germans could now hit them from three sides with unimaginably concentrated fire. 
they were torn apart. Then Private Mackin wrote that this open area, quote, was a place for men to die, a spearhead of outflung battle line thrust deeply into the German front, exposed to fire from three sides, its line of communication cut off by enfilading maxims firing from the flanks. It was a deadly place. With good reason did the hundred-odd survivors who came out of there name it in their memory the box, end quote. German Lieutenant Colonel Otto wrote that this attack was aimed at Blodnitz Hill. However, Lieutenant Colonels Owen and Swift have the thrust aimed toward the day's ultimate objective, the battered village of Saint-Étienne. Otto's retelling relates of the 1st Battalion attack with from three to five attack waves, with from one to two paces interval between each, followed up by closed columns of upwards of platoon strength. He, the enemy, stormed down the hill, Soon, our machine guns here, too, found their targets and began to cut down the attacking files, for in this open terrain they could find no suitable protection. Here, the losses of the enemy must have been especially heavy. One column received a direct hit from an artillery shell. A line of riflemen of from 30 to 40 men deceived into using for cover a railway embankment that stretched along the front in a semicircle, found themselves facing the wrong front and came under our enfilading fire. When darkness fell, they were still lying motionless on this same spot, presumably dead. Otto also noted that it has been ascertained that, on this day, one single machine gun, personally manned and fired by Vice Sergeant Major Kuhnler, of the 31st Bavarian Infantry Regiment, 1st Machine Gun Company, spent no less than 23,000 shots in well-directed fire upon the Americans. Unable to advance any further, the remnants of the now-decimated 1st Battalion pulled back onto Ludwigshoeken and established a hasty defense line. When the majority of the surviving 1st Battalion Marines pulled back to Ludwigshoeken, 30-odd men under Lieutenant Francis J. Kelly did just the opposite. They headed forward towards Saint-Étienne. They dug in just a couple of hundred meters away from the edge of the village, and Lieutenant Kelly determined that the doubling of the enemy shelling meant that a counterattack was coming. It did. On the day of unrelenting violence, two shrunken German battalions now materialized to try to outflank and then cut off the Marines on Ludwigsrucken Hill. Lieutenant Kelly and his men came out to meet the German attack. With him was one Sergeant Matei Matt Kochak, 66th Company C, a 12-year veteran of the Marine Corps and seasoned combat veteran of the AEF. Born just 750 miles away from Blancmont in the village of Gibeli in modern-day Slovakia, where his parents still lived, Kochak had emigrated to the United States, joined the Marines, and had been serving ever since. He had acquitted himself well in theater and had helped silence two enemy machine gun nests during heavy combat near Soissons during the summer just past. The paperwork for his Medal of Honor was likely being processed. 
According to David Laskin, the only account of Sergeant Kochak at Blankmont comes from Theodore Roosevelt Jr., then commanding officer of the 26th U.S. Infantry Regiment, 1st Division. How President Roosevelt's son got a hold of the story is unclear, but it reads as follows. Quote, Sergeant Kochak's battalion, the 1st, was ordered to meet it, the counterattack. They did not wait for it to reach them, but drove out at it, meeting the counterattack with attack. With a shock, the troops came together. For a few moments, with bayonet and rifle, they fought hand to hand. Then the Germans wavered, and in an instant were in full retreat into the woods from which they had come. Flushed with victory, the Marines followed hard on their heels. They burst into the woods. Kochak's company was held up by the sweep of a machine gun. Without hesitation, the sergeant started for it alone. He crawled, as he had at Soissons, to close quarters, then sprang to his feet and charged. Two Germans had seen him. Before he could reach them, they fired, and he fell dead. End quote. Sergeant Kochak would be buried eight days later in a temporary cemetery near Saint-Étienne, and post-war, he would be reburied in the Meurs-Argonne Cemetery in Romagne-sous-Montfaucon. He would be posthumously awarded two Medals of Honor, one Navy and one Army, in 1919. Lieutenant Kelly and his surviving men waited until the cover of darkness to make their way back to the American lines, and they would have quite the journey in the evening. The shattered battalions of the 5th Marine Regiment pulled back steadily throughout the remainder of the afternoon into a west and northwest facing defensive line astride the Somme saint Road. The Marines were practically where they had begun the day, and casualties were staggering. Of the new defense line set up in the afternoon, Private Oslin said, We now had no line just groups of men in the patches of woods, and no real connection between the groups. The other companies seemed to have fared as we did. 1st Battalion had gone into the attack with some 800 Marines. By 1800 on the 4th, there were 168 men left standing in the battalion. Along with the death of Sergeant Matei Kochak, another Medal of Honor recipient had met his end that day. 51-year-old 2nd Lieutenant and former Marine Gunner Warren Officer Henry L. Hulbert, United States Marine Corps, originally from Kingston-upon-Hull, England, had enlisted in the Corps at the age of 31 back in 1898. In 1899, he earned the Medal of Honor in Samoa during the Philippine insurrection. Hulbert had gotten past the Marine Corps' age restrictions to get over to France, where he, too, had acquitted himself well in combat. The 5th Marine Regiment as a whole was shattered, and its commander pulled no punches in reporting his situation. Colonel Logan Feeland, United States Marine Corps, reported that evening, This battalion will go, or attempt to go, where you order it. You should understand, though, that your regiment is now much depleted, very disorganized, and not in a condition to advance as a front-line regiment, even though the enemy forces in our front are found to be small. It is hard to say can't, but the division commander should thoroughly understand the situation and realize that this regiment can't advance as an attacking force. Such advance would sacrifice the regiment. 
The regiment would face counterattacks throughout the coming night, and it would hold its line. But as an attacking force, the 5th Regiment was finished after just two days in combat. On the 2nd Division's right, the day was only marginally better. At 0900 that morning, elements of the 9th U.S. Infantry Regiment and its neighbor on the right, the French 346th Infantry, attacked across the Medea Hill Samid Road. Both units were blasted with heavy fire from the grimly determined German defenders. In the afternoon, the 1st Battalion, 23rd U.S. Infantry, passed through the 9th to press on towards Saint-Étienne, towards where their brother Doughboys sat in their shell-slammed salient. Lieutenant Colonel Otto described the attack as follows. Quote, the attack waves of the 1st Battalion, 23rd Infantry, were at once subjected to a withering German machine gun and rifle fire. Having suffered extremely heavy losses, even the battalion commander was killed in action. The battalion, after an advance of not more than 300 meters, drew back to its original position. The 9th Infantry was ordered to assist the attack. But when the 2nd Battalion of this regiment observed that the 23rd Infantry had discontinued the attack, it likewise ceased to advance. The 1st Battalion, 9th Infantry, advanced and reached the Etienne au Foy Road, but at 9 p.m. was again withdrawn to its position at the Medea Farm. On the 2nd Division's left, the French 22nd DI succeeded in clearing Notre-Dame-de-Champs Ridge. Fighting almost through the night, the Poilus of the 22nd took the Grand Bois de Saint-Pie and the Saint-Pierre trench system that finally put them close to 4th Brigade units in the evening. German holdouts on the western slope of Blancmont were now completely surrounded, and despite the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marine Regiment, and Poilus, the French 17th Infantry Regiment, pounding them with artillery and battling it out on the slopes, the Germans held on. Despite having effectively stopped all of the American attacks that day, the Germans, too, had paid a steep price in blood. The 5th Jaeger Regiment reported just 80 men on its rolls that evening of the 4th. Orders went out from German command that withdrawal to the 4th main line of resistance behind the River Arne could begin that evening. Major General John Lejeune, commander of the 2nd Division AEF, wanted to continue the general attack the next day, but he wanted the French on either flank to be on line with him. He issued his operations orders, but kept the attack time to be determined later. Out front in the battle area, three six Marines moved up to finally clear out the enemy dug in on the west slope of Blancmont. Northeast of the German pocket on the ridge, the exhausted Marines of the 5th Regiment received help from two companies of 1-5 Marines to hold the line. This meant that 3-6 would have enough flank support to go in and flush out the Germans. At 0555 on October 5th, the guns of the 2nd Field Artillery Brigade pounded the German pocket for an hour. Then, as German Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Otto told it, at 7.15 a.m., the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marine Regiment, attacked the German machine gun strongpoints it still suspected of being located at these points. 
this battalion encountered no resistance whatsoever and suffered no casualties. The remnants of the defenders, cut off from their main bodies since 6 p.m., may have sought shelter in the deep dugouts as soon as the hostile artillery bombardment began and there waited until they were taken prisoners. For these men, there was really no other course. 209 prisoners, 75 machine guns and trench mortars, and much valuable material, loose and utilized in construction of positions, fell here into the hands of the enemy. As the morning went on, the French on the left pushed forward to find that the Germans had pulled back during the night to the River Arne. By 10.45, advanced units of the 22nd DI reported being at the Arne itself, as well as at the edge of the ruins of Saint-Étienne. Just over an hour later, 4th Brigade's command was instructed to pass the 6th Marines through the bled-out 5th Regiment and continue the attack on Saint-Étienne, all while maintaining contact with the doughboys of the 3rd Brigade on the right. 3rd Brigade would be holding for the time being, as the French 71st DI on its right had attacked at 11 o'clock that morning but made no gains. The order to assault Saint-Étienne was shortly afterward changed to have the 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, under Major Ernest C. the Bull Williams, retake Ludwigshochen and stay in contact with the 23rd U.S. Infantry. But it didn't change the ground. The 6th Marines would be attacking over the dead and wounded of the 5th Marines from the previous day. The 6th Regiment would be going in with three battalions in column, meaning one behind the other. These would be the 2nd Battalion leading, the 3rd in support, and the 1st in reserve. As they advanced, they would be open to enfilading fire from Bloodnitz Hill, as well as from the Germans facing the 3rd Brigade to the northeast. Ahead of them, the remains of the German 149th Infantry Regiment plus a pioneer company held the hasty line from Saint-Étienne to Bloodnitz Hill. This mishmash of a unit numbered maybe some 500 men, but between them, they had over 40 machine guns. For a depleted regiment, that was a hell of a lot of firepower. At 1500 that afternoon, the 340 officers and men of the 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, set off from Blankmont Ridge. Again, no artillery support was given, as the American front line couldn't be properly identified. The German command of 1st Battalion, 149th Infantry, reported that the Americans attempted to advance from Ludwigshochen to Saint-Étienne with great masses of assault detachments, but were warded off by machine gun fire with heavy losses. Stronger elements of his assault detachments continued, however, to lodge within our outpost area, especially from the south exit of Etienne to the depression that extends as far as Ludwigshochen. While the 78th Company E, under the command of 1st Lieutenant James Sellers, moved into wooded terrain that offered some protection, 1st Lieutenant John West's 79th Company F, on the right, came under heavy machine gun fire from Blodnitz Hill and the northeast. West mistakenly veered his company towards Blodnitz Hill. Once there, they were held up by barbed wire and then pinned down with machine gun fire from nests they could not locate. Casualties mounted, and the command of the company became difficult. 
Things got worse when Lieutenant West took a bullet to the head. Behind West's company was the 96th Company H, led by First Lieutenant Clifton Cates. Cates now took over the 79th Company as well, and sent back word to his battalion commander as enfilading fire hit his men from multiple angles. Cates reported, The 79th Company was held up by barbed wire and a terrific machine gun fire. Lieutenant West was killed and losses were heavy. The Major from 23rd Infantry ordered us to halt here. It will take a good heavy barrage to get the guns out, at least eight in the nest. I now have about 40 men of the 79th Company and 45 of the 96th Company here with me. I will hold until further orders, as it is a needless sacrifice of my men to try and take this nest. I am digging in and consolidating. I await orders. Major Williams called for artillery fire on Blodnitz Hill and the firing positions to the east that were causing so much trouble. It turned out that on Blodnitz Hill, Lieutenant West was still alive, but now in danger of being blown to pieces by his own artillery. Lieutenant Kate sent off another runner. We have wounded men in the woods where the nest is. A report is that Lieutenant West is still alive but badly wounded and still in the woods. Should we shell the woods under those circumstances? It is impossible to get out the wounded. This same nest cut up the 23rd Infantry yesterday, and the Major told us that we should not attack, but we followed orders. We can hold here, but it will take an extra heavy barrage to get them out, and more men. Cates would have to dig in for the night and hold the line. To the west, the rest of the 2nd Battalion dug in on the southern slope of Ludwigshoeken. Further west, the French 118th Regiment d'Infanterie entered Saint-Étienne and found it unoccupied. As the village was not part of the German 4th main line of resistance behind the Arne, and as it sat in a depression in the ground, Saint-Étienne at the moment had little tactical worth. Of course, that was about to change. To the rear of the combat front, 6th Regiment Commander Colonel Harry Lee reported that the men are exhausted and those still willing are physically about all in. Lee requested relief of his regiment. 4th Brigade Marine Commander Brigadier General Wendell C. Neville estimated his combat strength at around 1,900 rifles. 2nd Division AEF was nearing the end of its effectiveness. American guns went off at 05.30 the next morning, October 6th, preparing the way for a joint attack by the 6th Marines and the 23rd Infantry on Bloodnitz Hill and the Saint-Étienne-Orfoy Road. Bloodnitz Hill was now held by men of the German 368th Infantry, but the cemetery at Saint-Étienne was tied in with it, so taking the hill was going to be trouble. The cemetery in Saint-Étienne had been turned into a fortress by the Germans of the 149th Infantry, and the ground was such that it allowed machine gunners there to fire to the southeast. Red rockets shooting up into the early morning sky indicated that some of the artillery was coming in short. It was landing amongst the Marines themselves as they waited in the jump-off line such as it was. But at 0630, 
An hour after the bombardment began, the Marines of 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines, under the command of Major George K. Schuler, got up warily and advanced. Immediately, German machine gun fire whizzed, swished, punched into the attacking Marines. Men began to fall, while others around them bent down as if heading into an oncoming rainstorm. German artillery came crashing down, sending geysers of dirt and men and pieces of men tumbling into the air. American artillery shells continued to come in too, adding to the terror of the scene. But 45 minutes into the attack, Schuler reported back that the first enemy trench line had been seized. The attack continued through the morning, with the Americans slowly grinding forward through the German defenses. By mid-morning, Major Schuler was reporting that he had taken the objective and linked up with doughboys of the 23rd Infantry on his right. Marines were on the crest of Bloodnitz Hill, although the Germans remained on the northern slope hidden in the woods there. Companies from 1st Battalion 6th Marines were moved up to support the advance. On the right, the 3rd Brigade did advance to the Saint-Étienne-Orfoy Road, where it dug in. 2-9 Infantry came in on the right flank to help secure it and maintain contact with the French 173rd DI at Medea Farm. The 2nd Division's battalions were ever more depleted. There just weren't enough men left. Fighting picked up in Saint-Étienne as Poilus of the 118th RI pushed into the western part of the village. The 2nd Division was unable to help the French here. Later in the afternoon, the French sent in the 62nd Infantry Regiment, which occupied the village. But a German counterattack sent the French packing, and French reports to the Marines that the village was secured were obviously incorrect. Even if the French had held the village, which they had not, they had not cleared the cemetery. Now the capture of Saint-Étienne became a necessity as the village was preventing the French 22nd DI and the American 2nd Division from coming fully online with each other. Major General Nolan would need his divisions all abreast of each other before he could launch a new corps-wide assault on the German lines. The 2nd Division, however, could no longer be a part of that future attack. It was a spent force and would need to be relieved. Already, the 71st Brigade of the untested and untried 36th Arrowhead Division were moving into the battle zone to conduct a handover of the lines. These Texas and Oklahoma boys, brand new to the fight, would have to be the ones to carry on. On the German side, despite their ability to stop the American and French attacks, their already desiccated divisions, with one exception, were being mauled just as brutally on the Blancmont battlefield. From a German 3rd Army report on October 5th, quote, The 200th Infantry Division, since September 26th engaged in serious combats, has suffered heavily. There are grave doubts as to whether this division should be left longer in lines. At the present time, the combat strength of the three Jaeger regiments has shrunk to a total of 500 men. The 51st Reserve Division has no further combat value. Exhausting night marches prior to its employment and the last eight major combat days have worn its men out completely. According to last reports, 
The 234th Infantry Regiment has assembled a remnant of 150 men, the 235th about 350 men, and the 236th about 150 men, which numbers include staffs, machine gun units, etc. The 203rd Infantry Division is in practically the same condition. The heavy losses have considerably decreased the number of officers, enlisted men, and horses of battalions and batteries. It is necessary that the 410th Infantry Regiment be reorganized. Success in warding off the recent hostile attacks has raised the morale of the men, and confidence prevails despite their wariness. The 213th Infantry Division maintains the excellent combat value displayed during yesterday's attacks, in which the 149th Infantry and the 74th Reserve Infantry Regiment were engaged in efforts to hold Blancmont and block the points of penetration at Medea Hill. It must, however, be assumed that these bitter combats have been accompanied by considerable casualties. The 195th Infantry Division Health and morale satisfactory. This division is fully able to engage in defensive warfare. The 15th Bavarian Infantry Division. Not a single unit of this division is capable of combat. End quote. The night of October 6th through 7th saw the Marines and Doughboys begin to be relieved by the fresh Doughboys of the 36th. The battered units of the 2nd Division moved back to support and reserve positions, placed there to assist if the FNGs needed help. Major General Lejeune would remain in control of operations until the 36th Division command staff was fully set up. It was at mail call, just after their relief, that Private Elton Mackin fully felt the trauma of what he and his fellow Marines had been through. Lieutenant Colonels Owen and Swift use a modified version of Mackin's quote in their monograph, A Hideous Price, but we're going to flesh it out a little more here. The battalion had come back from Blankmont Ridge. No, the battalion was still up there. But anyway, ah, oh, hell, let me get this straight. 134 of us had come back from Blankmont Ridge. We had gone up a full-strength battalion, a thousand strong. The men were shocked and dazed and walked about with queer expressions. Sentences stopped in midair as an individual scanned figures approaching through the distant trees. One saw expectancy, an eagerness of welcome, die on a stricken face. It wasn't him. He wasn't there. He was still up on the ridge. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at fordunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.